Thanks again, uh, Dr. Gorham, for your kind words of introduction and, and your graciousness to me and our staff for being here this week. Uh, so thankful to the Lord for the opportunity to open God's word with you. But I, I, I just want to confess at the very beginning, it's, this is, it's not so much intimidating. It's a little bit disappointing because I, I know so many men in this room. And to be honest, I would far rather be sitting and listening to you than, than preaching. I mean, there are literally and without exaggeration heroes of my faith in this room. In fact, uh, Peter Smith, you're a missionary, pastor, theologian. I have known you since you were, we were both younger with, uh, with browner hair then. And uh, to see what the Lord has done over the course of your life is it's so encouraging. Um, even uh, Ben Tellinghusen, who is a, a worker, shepherd, intern with, uh, with us out in California, it's just, and can we say this too? The older that you get in ministry, and if you've got some gray hairs, you'll affirm this, you begin looking around and there are fewer and fewer people who are, who are staying the course that we started with. I was looking at an old picture of our seminary graduation and was both encouraged by the men who are still holding faithful and then could look at men in that picture who have completely defected either theologically or morally or um, in ways that just disappoint the Lord, I'm sure, in ways that are we wouldn't have predicted on that day that we graduated together. So sweet time to be with you. Thank you for your vision for having this conference, uh, Dave, and your um, your expert shepherding of all of us. Speaking of that, let's turn in our Bibles to First Peter chapter five. We're going to talk a little bit about shepherding today in our last session. I've entitled this shepherdology, which is not a real word, but it works for what we're going to be talking about. Very familiar text that I'm sure you have looked at, preached, it's, it's, it's a different kind of environment, though, to preach this passage to church leaders than it is to preach in the regular flow of your church. This is a slow pitch in the batting cage for us, and I'm so thankful to the Lord for this passage. Let me read those first four verses, and then we'll look at them together. Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The Bible mentions over 70 types of animals. The Hebrew and Aramaic languages of the Old Testament employ about 180 words regarding animals, and the New Testament Greek uses about 50 words pertaining to animals. They describe distinctions, classes, gender, and ages of animals. There are clean animals and unclean animals. There are domesticated animals and wild beasts. There are cattle and goats and horses and camels and donkeys and pigs and dogs and snakes and frogs and bears and leopards and foxes and jackals and wolves and fish and sparrows and eagles and vultures and worms and caterpillars, dragons and locusts, even leviathans and behemoths in the Bible. Bible's virtually a zoo when you look at it. There are so many animals mentioned in the Bible. And that should make sense to us because our creative God created the animals with his creativity. But the most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible is a sheep. References to sheep and flocks number almost 400. And for good reason. Sheep were a central part of the Israelite economy. They were raised for milk and meat and wool. Sheep were also predominant part of the sacrificial system. The Bible is a book full of sheep. And where there are sheep, there must be shepherds. Shepherding sheep in the ancient Near East was, was very different than shepherding sheep in modern days. It's critical to understand, though, the shepherding of sheep. If you want to understand the comprehensive illustration that shepherding and shepherdology makes, 
or uh, plays in God's word. Very different conditions than modern practices. There were no fences. Think about this. No fences where sheep could be held. No fences that kept them from being attacked by wild beasts. Sheep were totally dependent on shepherds for protection against predators, for finding shelter against threatening heat or cold, to lead them to pastures where they could graze. In short, the shepherd was a provider, protector, guide, authority, and constant companion for his sheep. However, shepherds in the ancient Near East were not an esteemed group of men. They were an odd sort. They lived nomadic lives. They lived with animals out in the wilderness and their sole purpose was the care of the flock. They slept with and by their animals. Often there was a pen that the, sh- that the sheep would be put in. Jesus used the illustration that the shepherd sleeps where? By the door for protection. These were hard-working, blue-collar, lower-class men. However, they were a bit of a respected sort at a certain level. Everybody knew the welfare of the sheep industry was entirely dependent upon these men. They've actually been called the cowboys of ancient Israel for good reason. They were men's men. Now, why the lesson on sheep husbandry? Well, because the imagery and understanding of a shepherd is so indescribably loaded as a central imperative in the passage before us and a central illustration for pastoral care. In fact, the word pastor has to do with the care of sheep and animals. In chapter five of first Peter, verse two, Peter instructs the spiritual leaders to shepherd, shepherd the flock of God. Every dictionary, it was interesting. Every dictionary I looked, um, even in my Lagos, when I did a search of my Bible dictionaries with uh, shepherds and sheep, all of the articles mention the fact that sheep are dumb. Sheep are stupid. And it's true. They will follow a, a, a lead sheep off a cliff and they are not the brightest of animals. And it's easy for us when we're, we think of ourselves as shepherds of the flock that God's given us to think, yeah, those sheep are dumb and forget that you and I are sheep too. So everything we would think about dumb, stupid, difficult to lead sheep, that's us as well. Don't forget that. So in looking at this very familiar passage with some shepherds that I know have looked at this before, we can easily focus on the stupidity, the unintelligence, the dependence, the proneness, the wonder of the people that were called to pastor. But let's just remember that that's us before the Lord as well. Jeremiah 3.15, what a prophecy. God's foundational purpose for pastoral ministry. I hope this is a passage underlined in your Bible as a shepherd, as a pastor. Prophesying, Jeremiah says, then I will give you, speaking for the Lord, then I will give you shepherds, God says, after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. You know, every time I read that, even reading it right now in this moment, I I just say, Lord, I want to be that kind of man. I want to be that kind of shepherd. I want to be the fulfillment of that prophecy that you promised to give shepherds who would feed the sheep of your your own flock. Now, the point of all this is very simple by way of introduction. God is the ultimate shepherd of his people, but he's called a group of men to do his shepherding through in his church. And in the passage before us, Peter shows us that this shepherdology is pervasive and what it's supposed to be like, but it is not for the faint-hearted. There are serious, consequential, expected responsibilities associated with being being in pastoral ministry. This is not just for a a senior pastor. This is for anyone, an elder, a pastor, a, a, a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher who gives the word of God to people, it's the shepherding crook that God is using called us that he's shepherding his people through. So if you want to follow an outline today, we're going to break this passage down very, 
very summary wise, we could spend a long time here, but just as a high altitude flyover, three sobering realities of pastoral ministry. And I'm preaching to my own heart as I look at these three sobering realities of pastoral ministry. The first responsibility is in verse one, is a serious responsibility. The first responsibility, it is a serious responsibility. We're doing three sobering realities of pastoral ministry. It is a serious responsibility. Verse one, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, full disclosure, we could spend hours on this verse. There's so much theology baked into it. But for our purposes, I want to look at the shepherding responsibility. It's a serious responsibility. This exhortation is to the elders. These are simply the spiritual leaders who are senior in age or senior in experience. There's an age-old question, and I'm not sure what your polity is, if you have pastors or and elders and, and deacons or spiritual leaders. I'm not concerned about the debate over nomenclature right now, except to say that God expects that those who are giving leadership have some, some experience and some acumen about spiritual leadership and responsibility. And it doesn't always track with age. One of my old friends and dear mentors, Chris Mueller, used to say, if you're trying to get across the lake in a canoe, it doesn't matter how long you've been sitting in the boat that determines how far you are across the lake. It's how hard you've been pulling at the oars. And he's right. And I think you, you know this. Some of you who have leaders in, on your uh, elder team, on your leadership team, sometimes young men have been pulling really hard at the oars and are further across the lake than men who should be farther than they are, right? We should have all of us pulling hard at those oars Three terms come together, by the way, in this passage that triangulate the recognized leaders in the church. It's very fascinating. Elder, shepherd, or pastor, those who exercise oversight, verse one and two. Now, these same terms are used in tandem in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28 as well. Elder calls for maturity, is presbyteros. Overseer, episkopos, is, is, is one who leads by wisdom, a manager. And pastor, which is used sometimes in its verbal and sometimes in its noun form, poimane or poimeo, is a call for someone to care for the souls entrusted. Three key words, pastor, overseer, elder. These were all, I believe, the same office in Peter and in Paul's mind. Someone who set aside to give oversight to the care of the flock. Now, you know that in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, he, he goes one level deeper than that and says, those who are remunerated, those who are paid by giving attention to the teaching uh, ministry of the church is even a subcategory of that. But still, a pastor, overseer, elder, I believe, based on Acts 20 and here in this, this passage in 1 Peter 5, are functionally the same man, the same kind of man. Now, we need to remember just for a minute the context for 1 Peter. How many of you have preached 1 Peter before? Yeah, a few of you. 1 Peter is an interesting book. 1 Peter was written to people who were suffering and it has very little comfort in it. Interesting. You're suffering and I'm gonna give you comfort by knowing the good theological premises of God's care one of those is the elder oversight that he's given us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't give comfort, but he assumes that that comfort comes through right doctrine as we studied in Ephesians. Why shift the discussion from suffering in four chapters to elders in chapter five? Well, because Peter wants to make sure that the people are cared for as they enter into suffering and persecution. They need leadership. They need pastoral oversight. They need care. He also wants to make sure that the elders and pastors don't shrink away from shepherding the people during the persecution they were about to incur. To be a pastor during this time was to make yourself a bigger target for persecution. The pastor was the chief target of the persecutors. 
I think that's why Peter begins with this admonition to see the serious nature of the ministry and also to associate himself. I'm one of you. I also am the target for persecution. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. I'm an elder also. By the way, therefore, reaches back to verses 17 and 18, where judgment is said to begin with the household of God. This no doubt puts the most weight on the leaders who would prepare the church for being evaluated by God. He says, I exhort you, I entreat you, I want to give you comfort. And I think this verse contains Peter's most extensive self-description in the whole epistle. First and second, Peter, actually. He uses two phrases, fellow elder and witness of the suffering. Now, there's a lot of debate about that. Some people think that that's a reference to Peter being kind of far away from the from Calvary and watching the crucifixion. The church history has a tradition that, that points toward that, and maybe that's the case, but it's not explicit. I think there may be something more here. Peter, being with Jesus the last three years of his life, saw his ministry as dogged with suffering. The Lord experienced suffering almost at every turn. He lived with that reality. And as I said, he's a fellow elder. Peter too was to suffer for Christ in his pastoral ministry. He doesn't show his apostolic business card here. Instead, he says, I'm of the same designation as you. It's the exact opposite of what we might think. I'm an elder, look at me. He says, no, I'm an elder. I will be persecuted just like you. Bottom line is this, Peter is not asking the elders and pastors to do anything that he's not willing to do himself, that he's not doing himself already, even suffering for spiritual leadership. This apostle understands that their fears, their temptations, and the responsibilities were common to his own. I think there's an important principle here. It's always the spiritual leaders who will bear the brunt of the persecution first. And we need to look for that and look out for that. Peter embraces God's call on his life as a leader in the church for the church. This is a calling that will eventually lead to his own martyrdom in Rome. And Peter, as you and I should be doing, never call for following in anything that we're not willing to do ourselves, Peter was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ throughout his last three years. Tom Shiner says this, Peter did actually observe Christ in his ministry, saw the opposition mount against him, was present when he was arrested, and may have found his way to the cross after denying him. Now, we need to beware to take on the responsibility The position of spiritual leadership is to make yourself vulnerable to the same violent forces that ended up putting our Savior on the cross. So many young, naive, dear brothers in seminary, imagine graduating seminary and having big churches and long lines of people to talk to them after their sermons. They dream of that appreciation. And I think Peter would say, no, you're gonna be the first in line to be persecuted. It is a serious responsibility to be a pastor or a shepherd. That's the first of these three sobering realities. The second is where we get into the little nuggets of this passage. It is a delegated responsibility. Number two, it is a delegated responsibility responsibility. It's serious and it's delegated. This is in the simple phrase, shepherd the flock. What's the next two words? Of God. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. That oversight is our episcopos word, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Peter had an unforgettable interview with the risen Lord on the shores of Galilee after they retreated from the south in Judea up to Galilee, where Jesus said, I'll meet you up north. You know this passage well, but I think we put the accent on the wrong syllable here sometimes, theologically. 
And what I mean by that is we, we often talk about, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Not the point of the passage, not the imperative of the passage. It's the interrogative of the passage. Listen to this with fresh ears. John 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I've read the debates of phileo and, and uh, um, agape. and I, I get all that. And that's a worthy study. That's not the imperative. The command is, if you love me at whatever level and whatever meaning that is, you will take care of my sheep. By the way, the verb that Jesus uses in John 21, 16 is the verb used in verse two here, shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. It's both something we do because of some, and because it's something we are. We're shepherds. Ephesians 4, 11, I'm sure you've taught it. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as shepherds, pastors, teachers. Spurgeon said, with all his maturity and firmness, the spiritual father is full of tenderness and manifests an intense love for the souls of men. He was born on purpose to care for other people. And his heart cannot rest until it is full of such care, end quote. First phrase here in verse two is the most important of the passage we find that it is a delegated responsibility because we are to shepherd the church that is God's church. We often use babysitters. It's a fitting illustration. I remember the very first time we were actually living here in Detroit with our, with our uh, brand new son, Luke, who was born here. And it was the first time we'd been a couple weeks and we were home and we had a chance to to go out and have a nice dinner with each other. And, and some friends of ours said, well, watch your baby and you can go. And I mean, that was traumatic for us. We went over to uh, their house and we, we dropped Luke off and we walked out and we, is this okay? Who, why is this? I mean, th then they get older and you say, please, baby. No, that's another time. That's another passage. God left his precious, valuable sons and daughters with us. And it's not babysitting for a couple hours. It's care during their sojourn on this earth. What delegation. And let me remind you, the sheep are not ours. Shepherd, what flock? The flock of God. We have to be careful talking about my church and our church and my people. They're not our people. They're God's. In fact, we're not really truly shepherds. We're more like under shepherds. Actually, we're more like sheepdogs. Notice that this is important. Shepherd, the flock, God's flock. This is so, so important in our day. Among you. Among you, oh, 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 is there a challenge with this little thing that Al Gore invented called the internet? That was a joke. Just make sure you know that. Celebrity pastor phenomenon. I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a bit of a, I don't know if I would call it a curse, but a blessing and a challenge in that your flock that you're, 
taken care of for the Lord is they have access to the greatest preachers of all time in print or on video or on audio just by a click. And they're better than we are. Some of them a lot better. There's two ways I want to think about that. First of all, we should praise God that our people have access to that, but our people also should understand. Our precious churches should understand that John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg, and Chuck Swindoll don't pray for your kids. They don't know your name. We can appreciate their teaching, but they're not your pastors and shepherds. They don't know your heart. They don't counsel you and care for you and pray for you. I think for us, we need to think twice about our use of social media, Facebook, or the medium formerly known as Twitter, X. Um, I just sometimes read tweets. And I, by the way, I got off Twitter, uh, I think we were talking about this, Dr. Doran. This, this, this is not, a, this is the opposite of bragging. I got off Twitter and Facebook a few years ago because I came to the conclusion that I'm not mature enough for them. I know that that sounds like false humility. It's not. I, I liked being liked and I didn't like being criticized. And I thought, this is an easy thing for me to take out of my life. You know, I don't have to do this. I just wasn't mature enough to handle it. If you are, praise God for that. I'm glad for you. But sometimes I read and have read pastors' tweets and I just want to say, who are you trying to shepherd? Sometimes I read tweets that impact our church by people. And I think, why are you doing this? Why do I have to clean up the mess that you're making? These are not the people you're called to shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Where's your focus? I'm not telling anyone or everyone to go get off Twitter, but I am saying there is a unique phenomenon where sheep are vulnerable, susceptible to being shepherded by people who are not called to be their shepherds. I, I just... I'm trying not to do a, a, a rant, but let, let me ask you this. Um, there's a beautiful atrium, vestibule out there, lobby. I cannot imagine, Dr. Doran, any of the church leaders here, on a Sunday morning, if someone came in and set up a table with false teaching or radical teaching or political teaching or something that was contrary to the doctrinal statement of this church and set up a table with flyers and books and pamphlets about their own particular theology, false as it might be, and as people came in the door, they would say, here, have all you want. And the elders would say, no, that's, that's okay, you can have them. Would they do that? That's called Facebook. I'm serious. People are, 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 the precious souls allotted to our charge are bombarded every day, every hour with all sorts of ideas. We need to shepherd that and care for that and teach about that. But our people, I think, and I'm using that loosely. I, I know that they're the Lord's people, but the ones allotted to our charge, our people who are in this precious flock, I think we'll listen less to those internet voices if we are giving them the kind of pastoral care that will satisfy their souls. But we live in this, this celebrity pastor culture. Everyone wants bigger and better. And I just want to remind you, Scottish Puritan John Brown said this, this is so powerful. One of his ministerial students was newly ordained, freshly graduated from seminary. And he said this quote to this young man, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will be mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account to them, of them, to the Lord Jesus at his judgment, you will think I had enough.
end quote. It's great to think about wanting a church of thousands. You recognize that you're going to give an account, Hebrews 7, 13, 17, for these souls? Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you want. Exercising oversight by shepherding. I want to share a, just a perspective with you that I, I think I, I don't think I would have said this at 30, but I say it now at 60. This is, this is the conclusion of years of preaching, lots of pastoral ministry. I'm in my 42nd year of pastoral ministry. Um, man, we are called by God. If you read your New Testament, we are called by God to be shepherds who preach, not preachers who shepherd. Carrie was talking about this yesterday. Just look at the imperatives in the New Testament for spiritual leadership. How many verses are there about preaching? I would argue half a dozen. Maybe just a half a dozen. How many verses are there that talk about caring for the souls of people? Like the rest of the verses. <laughs> Let me ask you another question. Is there more time between Sunday afternoon and Saturday night than there is on Sunday morning during your preaching time? God has called us to care for souls. And part of that is preaching. Listen, I, I have two terminal degrees in preaching. I, I love preaching. I love studying preaching. I, I love listening to preaching. But I also understand that discipleship, counseling, caring, that is a, that gives the credibility that we need to have for people to listen to our hearts in the pulpit. It's shepherding souls. Let me say something even stronger. I don't think there's such a thing as a preacher who's not a pastor in the New Testament. There is no gift where you just go preach. And I mean, even George Whitfield, who's often called, you know, the he goes on his horse and he just preaches. He would stay for hours and talk to people about their souls after the sermons. This is a wonderful and a convicting passage. We, we are to be caretakers for souls, not just public speechers. And speeching, public preaching is important. It's super important. So is the care of the souls. There are special temptations associated with spiritual leadership. These have been demonstrated over and over with the persistent failures of the Jewish leadership that you read about. He gives three qualified contrasts. I'm going to do very quickly here. Uh, three qualified sins and their antidotes in this next few phrases. Exercising oversight, there's the positive, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. We are shepherd people, not because we have to, but voluntarily according to the need of the moment, but because we want to. Some pastors talk about, I was drugged into the ministry, called into the ministry, kicking and screaming. Then you weren't called by God. It says, if any man aspires, wants, desires the work of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. It's a voluntary thing. We, we want to do this. We know what we're getting into. Kim and I were talking just recently and it was a sweet conversation. Please don't hear me otherwise. But we were looking at our calendar and we noticed over the next month that we are spending the most part of our time with people that we really need to more than the people we really like to. And it's not that we don't want to or would like to spend time with people, but you know what happens sitting across on our two couches in our living room is usually not, hey, how's life? And uh, let's talk about all the good things. It's usually, please help. That's what we signed up for, isn't it? That's what we get to do. People want what you have to say because it's anchored in what God has said. It's not under compulsion. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we want to. And remember this, oh, this, was, this is a tough, this is a tough reality to come to. Remember that your people need what you have to say and they need your care. When they stand in line to talk to you after your sermon, 
and you're thinking, oh, this is pretty good, and they're going to tell me what a great job I did. I think nine times out of ten, when they stand in line to talk to you, they're not standing there because they want to adulate you and give you all the praise that you, you or your soul and your flesh wants. They're standing there to talk to you because they want, they want you to notice them. They want you to care for them. They want you to know them. And there's a quick way to tell that. Rick, that was a great sermon. I really appreciate it. Hey, that's great. What's going on in your life? How are you doing? And they go right into that and they forget talking about the sermon. You know what they want to talk about. And that's okay. That's what we're there for. Lord taught me a very valuable and a painful lesson. In the first year I was at Mission Road, there was, there was a, a, a man who uh, was a, uh, well, he was a time magnet. Let's just say that. Uh, you, you, some of you guys are going north and south. You have time magnets in your church as well, right? Uh, and in fact, when I, when, I candidating, when I candidated, the elders told me later that they took turns talking to him so that he wouldn't come and talk to me the whole time during the, the visit. Well, I was there, and sure enough, I'd been there in a few weeks, and every Sunday afterwards, he would come and talk and come and talk and come and talk and not really much to say. Just wanted to talk about anything and nothing, and I never just wanted to talk, wanted to talk. And I got to the point where I would see him coming across the, the, uh, the, the, audi- the auditorium, and I would go, no, no, hi. And then we would talk for a few minutes, and, and then I felt myself as I was talking to him, looking around and looking, and, and then I could see that he could see that I was distracted. So I went home and talked to my wife, expecting some sympathy. Honey, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you his name. as so-and-so. I just, just can't. I, I mean, I just, it just bothered me. I, want, I need to talk to people. I want to talk to people. This is not good. This is, um, he's talking my time. And I just had this, these great pastoral assessments. And she listened to me a minute and she says, you know what I think, Rick? And I didn't have to ask her what she was going to say because she was going to tell me what she thought. She said, it sounds like God has put him in your life for you. No. The woman thou gavest me, she caused this to, no. (laughs) So my sweet wife challenged me. She said, I want you for the next three weeks to seek him out and see what happens. So the next week I saw him across the way and I made a beeline and said, hey, how you doing? And he was so shocked. He was freaked out. And I did that for about three weeks and it kind of subsided. You know, I look back at that and the Lord did a work on my heart. I'm not the hero of that story. I am the, the brunt of that story. But I think... I think what I learned is once he knew that I loved him and cared about him, he didn't need to ask for it. Do you have those people that start walking towards you in your church? (laughs) Maybe think differently. There's a second contrast here to oversee people, not greedy for gain, but eager to be of service, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Okay, there, there are places that you just cannot improve the King James. This is one of them. Filthy lucre. Uh, That's the best description. Filthy lucre. We don't do this for filthy lucre. Sordid gain. That's so soft. Filthy lucre is bad. We don't do it for money. We don't do it to get paid. We don't do it for honorariums and bonuses. 1 Timothy 3.3 informs us, flee from the love of money. And that's a qualification for eldership. Paul told Titus that the elders are not to be fond of sordid gain. 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons are not to be fond of it either, either. Where does this come to play? Is it easier to shepherd the, the people you know are big givers in your church than people who may not give at all? What's your heart? How does your heart respond to that? Let's keep going and not be convicted. Let us see there. We were also the third contrast. We were to oversee people not as domineering, but as role models for the flock. This is an interesting contrast. 
Verse three, nor not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. There's where there are people which are God's people, your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. There's a contrast there between lording and being an example. Those are the two contrasts. We are to be examples of what we teach, not exceptions. You know, a man who fell morally in ministry, and we had, we had a long chance, a chance to have long conversations afterwards. And he said, you know what, Rick? For over a decade, for almost two decades, I was telling people, have your quiet times, do, be in prayer, be with the Lord. And I was really good at preaching at it, but I didn't do it myself. Are we the example or are we the exception? I think being the example keeps you from lording leadership over people because we recognize we're all on the same side of the table and the Lord's on the other side pulling us toward himself. Wayne Grudem writes, Peter implies that elders should govern not by use of threats, emotional intimidation, or flaming, flaunting in power, nor generally by use of political force within the church, but rather by the power of example whenever possible. Nevertheless, in verse 5, in commanding others to be subject to their own elders, that implies that they have some genuine governing authority in the church and that at times they can give directions which the church ought to obey. See the balance there? I appreciate that. We're, 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 you know, prescribe and teach these things with all authority, Titus says. Paul told Titus, rather. Jesus taught his disciples the same lesson with this contrast in full and living color. Mark 10, 42, calling the disciples to himself, Jesus said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, the same phrase, and that their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your, what's the word? Servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. The most vivid description of delegated shepherding, being an example, being faithful, is in Ezekiel 34. This had to be the most fingernails on a chalkboard moment in all of the prophetical literature. For 33 chapters, for 33 chapters, the leaders of Israel and Jeremiah, Ezekiel himself, have heard, say this to the people sinning. Say this to the people who are, who are uh, contrary to God's law and sacrifice. Say this to the enemy. Say this. And there was a rhythm there. But then something happens in chapter 34 that would have been a showstopper. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says, saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and the air leaves the room. Oh, I'm sure the leaders, the shepherds, the pastors in Israel would have loved to have had the bad guy get the bad prophecy and they had gotten that for 30 plus chapters. But they must have started looking around the room. Say, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe shepherds of Israel, cursed be the shepherds of Israel. What words? Who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Is that sordid game? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity, you've dominated them. Doesn't this sound like what Peter was informed by? They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Listen to the analogy and also the reality. My flock, God says, my flock wandered through all the mountains and on every hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock 
has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. My shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather shepherds, the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds. Is there any more terrifying or horrific indictment the Lord could give a pastor than to say that? I'm against you as a shepherd. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. The remainder of the chapter, by the way, is a beautiful description where God says, I will be the shepherd. And if you want to see a great list of characteristics to shepherd by, keep reading in Ezekiel 34. Listen, pastors are not to be the celebrity of the church. We're to be the chief servant of the church. It's easier to stand strong in the pulpit than it is to stoop low and wash feet. It's easier to go to conferences than it is visit widows and orphans. It's easier to lead seminars in public than to pray long in private. Jeremiah 10, 21, for the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. So three sobering realities. It's a serious, reality, serious responsibility, a delegated responsibility, and number three, very quickly, it's an honorable responsibility. It's an honorable responsibility. No, chapter five, verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Peter provides incentive for spiritual oversight, spiritual service, namely eternal reward. There is something in this for you. This is not little league soccer where everyone gets a trophy. This crown is reserved only for those who have been responsible with their delegated responsibilities. An elder, a pastor's reward is not to be measured by financial remuneration or by worldly glory, but by our future glory and hearing well done from the Lord. Notice this is interesting. The whole discussion, Peter's whole discussion goes back to the Lord as shepherd, the chief shepherd. R.K. Poimenos, the highest shepherd, the mega shepherd. One of the most beloved and familiar passages in the Bible is Psalm 23. It's been the comfort and hope of many Jews and Christians since King David wrote it 30 centuries ago. Probably one of the most familiar passages in all, all the Bible, even to unbelievers. Think of it in the context of what Peter just said, the chief shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want the Lord, just think, the Lord is my shepherd. Do we rest in that bed? Do we swim in that water? Is that our, is the Lord our shepherd? He is, do we know it? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul, guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He changes from third to first person. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup, what is it? It overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What makes this passage so endearing, so encouraging, so hopeful, so tender, so personal, so gripping is this. It's a metaphor. It's a shepherd caring for sheep. The analogy of God as our shepherd is obviously connected with us being his sheep, but it doesn't stop there. We are shepherds on his behalf. What a privilege, what a responsibility. Hebrews 13, 20 calls God the great shepherd of the sheep. First Peter 2, 20 says the shepherd and guardian of our souls. I think there's nothing more comforting and mesmerizing than John 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd 
And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you love me? Jesus said to Peter, then take care of my lambs. Take care of my lambs. We are pastors who happen to preach, not preachers who might pastor. I pray, man, that we have a burden and a joy to take care of this precious flock that God has given us. And not to be pastorally lusting after another flock, but to be faithful to love the one that God has given us. He gave you as a gift, Ephesians 4, to the church. And he gave these sheep to you to be cared for on his behalf because they're his. What an honor. What a responsibility. What a privilege. Preach, man, preach. Learn how to preach. Learn how to preach better. Be Preach, preach, preach. Amen. But also shepherd. Is there anything exegetically that makes preach the word a higher priority than shepherd the flock? They're not competing for first place. They're both a part of who we are and what we do. Let's remember that privilege and that honor. Let me pray. Oh, Father, this passage is so convicting even to my own heart. I can sense so many negligences I've given even in the past week to people who need better pastoral care and attention. Thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness. Please cause us, teach us, enable us to shepherd your flock, the one that's among us, for their benefit, for your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.